afternoon, America, and welcome to the Dean's List. I'm Dean Bowen. We're listening to America Out Loud Talk Radio, and uh, it's a special edition today. Uh, yes, it's it's a history class edition. Today, you know, we've spent the past couple of days talking about the short supply of truth that, um, you know, really that we're getting in society. I mean, I, I I talk about it in terms of education, but we're really getting it in society. It's just it's a short supply of truth, and this is why from from time to time uh, I like to go to history class, and uh, I, I just I, I think it's important that that we understand our history and the truth of it. There are values. That, that we can take from, from learning history. There are things we can learn and things we can apply to our lives today from learning history. It's not just, oh, it's old, it's dusty, it's boring. You know, well, I'm going to listen to some guy tell me about what happened a hundred years ago. No, I don't want to, you know, it's, it's, it's not that. It's if, if, we, if we take the lessons from history and we apply them to our lives today, holy cow, we can be better humans. We can certainly have a better society. We can have a better country. You know, but we have to be willing. We have to want to dive into it. We have to want to to, to learn about things which are true, good, and beautiful, and wholesome. So we're going to do that today. Today we're going to dive into history class. This might be one of my, I don't know, it's one of my favorite things. Going into history class, uh, well, you know, I love it because I love actual history, actual true history. And there is not, well, there are, hmm, how can I say this? George Washington is one of my favorite history class topics. Let's put it that way. One of my favorite. And today's his birthday. So let's dive into history class centered around the life and times of George Washington. Some things that you you may have known about George, some things you may not have known about George, uh, you know, but all, all good, important things. All good, important things that students and citizens of America need to know about, uh, you know, the chiefest of the founding fathers, perhaps. Of course, Washington was born February 22nd, 1732. He was unanimously chosen as the Army's commander-in-chief. He was unanimously chosen as president of the Constitutional Convention. He was unanimously chosen as the first president of the United States. And he was unanimously re-elected to a second term. I don't think that's ever happened. No, well, certainly it hasn't. A, a person has never been, outside of Washington, an individual has never been unanimously elected as president. But to be unanimously chosen for these other, these other roles speaks volumes to Washington's character. Uh, he was an Anglican, uh, and after the Revolution, he became an Episcopalian. Uh, George's great-great-grandfather was a reverend, Reverend Lawrence Washington. He was an Anglican minister who taught at Oxford. Uh, Lawrence and his wife 
Amphilis Twiggin had a son named John. Well, there's a name for you, isn't it? Amphilis Twiggin, first name Amphilis. Never heard of that before. Last name Twiggin. They had a son named John. And when the Puritans won the English Civil War in 1651, uh, Anglican ministers were demoted. And so here is George's great-great-grandfather, the Reverend Lawrence Washington, an Anglican minister, who finds himself being demoted to an assistant minister or a vicar. And he was, you know, put in this impoverished parish in Essex, England. You know, talk about talk about getting the raw end of the deal. It was during this time that John Washington, George Washington's great-grandfather, apprenticed as a merchant in London. He sailed a second officer on a ship to the colony of Virginia to purchase tobacco. In 1657, when a storm partially sank their vessel in the Potomac, John swam ashore. This would be George's great-grandfather. While the ship was being repaired, John stayed at the home of a planter named Colonel Nathan Nathaniel Pope. And John fell in love with his daughter, Anne, and John never returned to England. And that's, you know, that's how George ended up here. Uh, it was true love by his, you know, his his great-grandfather falls in love with Anne, and that's it. That's over. He's, he's like, I'm not going back. Oh, for the love of a woman. So John and Anne marry, and her father, uh, ends up giving them 700 acres in Westmoreland County. Talk about a wedding gift. 700 acres. Here you go. You know, here it is. So John Washington, George's great-grandfather, became a successful planter and a member of the Virginia House of Burgesses. He was a militia leader under Nathaniel Bacon's rebellion against Governor William Berkeley in 1676. A local Anglican church was renamed Washington in honor of George's great-grandfather, John Washington. The oldest of John Washington's sons was Lawrence. And so Lawrence is now the grandfather of George. You know, I just, if you're going to do a family tree, right, today's the day to do it on George's birthday. And there's some interesting stuff here that maybe you didn't know. So uh, George's great-grandfather, John Washington, his oldest son is Lawrence. So this is now George's grandfather. Lawrence married Mildred Warner, who was the daughter of Colonel Augustine Warner Jr., an ancestor of Queen Elizabeth II. So Washington's got some royal blood flowing through his veins. Yeah, his grandmother is uh, an ancestor of Queen Elizabeth. Lawrence and Mildred had three children. The second being Augustine, uh, who was, of course, named after uh, Lawrence's father-in-law, Colonel Augustine. And it's Augustine who would become George Washington's father. When uh, Lawrence, his grandfather, died in 1698, Mildred married George Gale and moved back to England with her children. When Mildred died, a relative in America petitioned to get custody of her children, including Augustine, and they were returned to Virginia in 1704. So there's the possibility uh, that Augustine doesn't come back, that he stays in England. 
but for this relative who who wants custody of the kids. And so the the children, including Augustine, uh, returned to to Virginia in 1704. Augustine serves as a vestryman in the Anglican Truro Parish. He and his wife, Jane Butler, had two sons who lived to adulthood, and they were Lawrence and Augustine Jr. Both Lawrence and Augustine Jr. went back to England to study at the prestigious Appleby Grammar School. Jane died in 1729, and Augustine remarries a woman by the name of Mary Ball in 1731. Together, they have six children. Their oldest is George Washington, who was born February 22nd, 1732. And then Augustine died in 1743 when George was only 11 years old. So, you, you know, George growing up had copied the uh, a book entitled The Rules of Civility and Decent Behavior in Company and Conversation. He copies this in his in his own handwriting. So this is a testament really to the to the character of George. It's a testament to his desires. It's a testament to the man that George Washington wanted to become. And so he copies out rules of civility and decent behavior in company and in conversation. He does this in 1744. This is the, the year following his father's death. So he's only 12 years old. But yet he has this desire uh, to become a certain type of man. And this, this, my friends, this is important to education. This right here, this aspect of George Washington in his life is important to, to our current situation in, in America. Because we we have young men growing up who they, they don't have this desire. I mean, they have a desire to be a certain type of man, and it's not this. And this is the type of education, in my opinion, that needs to return to the forefront in America. This right here, this is the this is the education that needs to come back. Uh, and and. And rules of civility and decent behavior, rule number 110. Okay, listen to this. Labor to keep alive in your breast that little spark of celestial fire called conscience. That was rule 110. And these are the rules that, that Washington is writing down. He's copying them down in his own hand. So to have that little spark of, of celestial fire called, called conscience. To, to be fully aware of right and wrong and to allow your conscience to guide and direct you, steering you down the, the path, down the course of what is right and what is wrong. This is, this, is, this is foundational. I've talked a lot the past couple of days about foundational truth. This right here is foundational truth, having a conscience that steers and guides us is foundational. And if if we took the time to instill this and pour this into our children, into their hearts and minds, we could save a generation. Now, it's not happening in, in the in the public sphere of education, but I know it's happening in other areas. I know it's happening in homeschools. 
I know it's happening in classical Christian schools. It's happening here. It's happening at Waterbrook. This is what we want to, this is one of the elements we want to still in the hearts of, of boys and girls, and that is having a conscience. You know, why? Why did you do this certain thing? All right, I, I had a, an elementary student brought to my office yesterday. I'm not going to name names. I have I have too many Waterbrookians who listen, so I, I try to keep uh, the the Waterbrookian examples to a minimum. But I had an elementary student who had to come to the office yesterday because of something this student did. And my my first question to the student was, "Can you tell me why? Why did you do this thing?" Because I I, I want them to begin thinking. I know why they did it, okay? I was a child once, all right? I know why these things happen. But I wanted to hear it from them, from this individual student. And I wanted uh, he or she to to put their their thoughts to words. You know, I, I want them to tap into their conscience. I want them to understand good behavior versus bad behavior. And, and, and this really should be happening across the board in schools all over the country. Unfortunately, unfortunately, it's not. But rest assured, it's happening in places. Therein lies the hope, my friends, the hope that we have for the future, because that this type of education is taking place. And it's what's needed to, to, to really take the country back, in my opinion. And, and, and we have to start young. We have to... Uh, if 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 we can start when they're little, and if we can train them up right, then uh, then there's hope. And this is what George did for himself. He loses his dad when he's 11, and here he is, 12 years old, and in his own hand, he is copying out the rules of civility and decent behavior in company and conversation. And he's going to to put these rules in his heart, and he, and they're going to stay with him. And they're going to guide and they're going to direct him for the rest of his life. And he did this on his own. Uh, th these are This is one of the things I love about George Washington. And this is one of the reasons why the man needs to be studied, why he needs to be studied by uh, elementary students, middle school students, and high school students is this reason right here. All right, back to history class. George's older half-brother, Lawrence. Uh, fought in the British Navy under Admiral Edward Vernon, who had captured Portobello, Panama from Spain in 1739. When Lawrence returned to Virginia, 1742, he named his farm after the Navy Admiral, Mount Vernon. That's where that's where Mount Vernon gets its name, after Admiral Edward Vernon. Uh, Lawrence then marries. And Fairfax, her father is Colonel William Fairfax. Uh, he had been the collector of customs in Barbados and chief justice and governor of the Bahamas, as well as a first cousin of Thomas Fairfax, who was the largest landowner in America with 5 million acres. Holy camoly. So uh, Lawrence is about to do very well for himself. He falls in love with Anne. Uh, he marries Anne, so the Fairfax family is very well-to-do. Uh, of course, Lawrence, you know, he's in, a, he's in a good position already. He arranged for George, who at the time was 15. 
he arranges for George to begin a career in the British Navy as a cabin boy. Uh, George really looked up to Lawrence. You know, Lawrence kind of becomes, you know, he's he's an, a much older brother, has a different mom from George, you know, same dad, obviously. Uh, and, and George looks up to him almost like a father figure. And so, you know, Lawrence arranges for this opportunity for George at the age of 15 to be a cabin boy. But George's mom is like, uh-uh, no way are you getting on a British ship at the age of 15. Not going to happen. So, you know, George being, um, you know, the good son that he is, he complied with his mother's wishes, even though he desperately, you know, wants to take advantage of this opportunity. In 1748, he's 16 years old. And he's employed by Thomas Fairfax to survey the western area of his vast estate. Remember, the Fairfaxes, they're loaded. They got a bunch of land. And, uh, you know, so here, here George is hired to, to survey some of the property. A few years later, uh, Lawrence comes down with tuberculosis. And in hopes that a change of climate would help him recover, doctors recommend that Lawrence traveled to Barbados, where you know he can he can relax in the sun, he can you know be in warm you know warmer weather. Uh, his father-in-law had been the collector of customs in Barbados, so he's you know he's got some connections there, and he brings George along with him. And George at this time is now seventeen years old. And this would be the only time that George would ever leave the American continent is when he sails to Barbados uh, with his brother. In Barbados, George contracted smallpox, but he recovered. And this, you know, oddly enough, I guess I shouldn't say oddly enough, but providentially enough, maybe this inoculated George so that he was immune during the Revolutionary War where it's estimated that more soldiers died of smallpox than in battle. But, you know, George had it as a young man, so he's good to go. So when it comes time to fight and they're in Valley Forge and, you know, smallpox is, is you know, ravaging through his men, George is protected. Lawrence uh, died in 1752 in his Mount Vernon estate, eventually was inherited by George, making him one of the youngest and one of the largest landowners in all of Virginia. Uh, and this, of course, takes him uh, right up to uh, the French and Indian War. So he um, he inherits this estate, 1752. The French and Indian War uh, really goes into earnest in 1753 through 58. And George really starts, you know, stepping into some... some some manhood at this point. I mean, he's already stepping into manhood. I, I guess now manhood is really starting to uh, um, grab hold of him. Uh, you know, he is, and he's stepping into manhood well. You know, he's 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 done a lot to prepare himself for this moment. His his older brother Lawrence has done a lot to help pre prepare him for this moment. Um, all right, guess what? Uh, I, I don't want to go too long here. I'm, I'm up against the break, but I, there's a lot yet to come over. So we will we'll pick this up on the other side. Once we dive into segment three, we will continue history class with George Washington. You're listening to The Dean's List on America Out Loud Talk Radio.
Cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death and disability. Lifestyle changes are critical, but you can also support your heart with concentrated nutrients. Healthy Cell created heart and vascular health to support cholesterol and blood pressure with CoQ10, vitamin K2, resveratrol, and soluble fiber. And Healthy Cell's not a pill, it's a patent pending gel you swallow. Get heart healthy. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD for 25% off. You've all heard Dr. McCullough and others share over and over the value of keeping your sinuses cleansed. It's a smart move all year, but even more so when we're cooped up inside. It's not really open for debate any longer. Those that live smart and live well pay attention to nasal and oral hygiene. Cofix RX has just the tools for the job with our nasal and throat cleanse. Click the Cofix RX banner on AmericaOutloud.shop to get 20% off your entire order. That's right, AmericaOutloud.shop. Use coupon code OUTLOUD. That's coupon code OUTLOUD for 20% off your entire order. Use Cofix RX because it works. The pandemic may be over for some, but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-term effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. Fortunately, Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at the wellness company designed their spike support formula with the miracle enzyme natokinase, scientifically studied to dissolve spike protein so you can feel your very best. Go to OutloudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Many voices, one freedom, united in the First Amendment. Our goal is to herald the voice of genuine liberty at AmericaOutloud.news. A place where you'll find the naked truth expressed with a patriotic heart. Now is our time, my fellow Americans. America Out Loud Talk Radio, liberty and justice for all. Welcome back to History Class on the Dean's List. I'm Dean Bowen. You're listening to America Out Loud Talk Radio. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, history class is, I mean, it's just one of my favorite things to do. It's one of my favorite times. Today is one of my favorite days because history class is about one of my favorite individuals, George Washington. And we have uh, we have Bill Federer to thank. You know, he's one of our favorite historians. And, you know, we have a few favorite historians. Bill Federer is one of them. And much of the information that I'm going over today is provided uh, by the work of of Bill Federer, if if you've never read any of Federer's books, I mean, get a book, you know, buy a book. Uh, I, I mean, I don't even want to start recommending books that he's written because there's too many, and they're just packed, jam packed with information. I mean, just jam packed, <laughs> cover to cover. Uh, so if you enjoy history, you enjoy American history, you just enjoy really world history, Western history. You know, a lot of his work covers Western history, not just American, but but Western. And it is so good. Uh, visit his website. You know, he has a newsletter that he sends out 
uh, almost every day. It's called the American Minute, and you can sign up for that, subscribe to it, uh, and you'll get you'll get you know information dumped in your in your email almost on a daily basis. I don't think it comes out every day, but it's it's close to it. And again, it's just it's more information than you can than you can handle. It's more than you can take in in one sitting. But if you're a fan of history, I encourage you look up Bill Federer uh, and you know just sit back, you know, pour yourself a relaxing beverage and 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 enjoy. That's all I can say is just enjoy. All right, let's dive back into history class. Uh, so we've, you know, the life of George has taken us up to the French and Indian War. Uh, and there in the war, he was a colonel under General Edward Braddock. Braddock allowed him to, to keep his original officership, I guess we could call it that. Uh, and Braddock, of course, is the commander of the British forces in America. And it's in the uh, Battle of Monongahala where uh, General Braddock uh, dies. And, of course, the death of Braddock leaves George in command. He miraculously survives this battle. We've talked about it here. And I, I think I'm going to do just a history class on Monongahala because it's um, – I have in the past. I think I'm going to do it again. I do it via video. You know, we'll have to see. I mean, there's just uh, – there's, I got some thoughts and ideas rattling around in my head. We'll just see where it takes us. So, you know, George survives the Battle of Monongahela miraculously, providentially. Uh, on July 18th in 1755, here's what, here's what George writes from Fort Cumberland. The battle's over. They, they make it back to Fort Cumberland. And he writes uh, his brother, John. He says, by the all-powerful dispensations of providence, I have been protected beyond all human probability or expectation. For I had four bullets through my coat and two horses shot under me, yet escaped unhurt, although death was leveling my companions on every side of me. Uh, and again, we've talked about this battle in, in detail where all the officers are, are shot off their horses except one, George Washington. Braddock is, is shot off his horse, mortally wounded. And he dies a couple days later. And it's up to George to to spearhead and organize the retreat, which was a difficult thing because his men are scattered everywhere. It's it's panic, it's mayhem. Later on, you know, years later, you know, Washington discovers when one of the Indian chiefs, you know, I think about 15 years later, uh, one of the chiefs finds Washington. And he says to him, that day, that day I had... 17 of my men uh, trained on you, and these men didn't know how to miss, but they couldn't hit you. And I told him, just stop shooting, because that man right there, he's protected by the Great Spirit. And then the chief prophesies over Washington and says he will never die in battle. A bullet will never take him out. Uh, and this is before the Revolutionary War. And so then in the war, Washington, you know, there are moments in the war where he just, you know, throws caution to the wind and just rides out, you know, in the, in the, in the, the fray of the fighting and shooting to get his men, uh, you know, 
riled up or to get his men engaged, to get them motivated to go after it. He's out there on horseback. And and part of me wonders, did, did he have that in the back of his mind? Did he firmly and fully believe the chief's prophecy that he would not die in battle? And therefore, at moments, almost recklessly risking his own life. I mean, if Washington dies, the cause is over. It's done. The death of one man kills the whole thing. And Washington is that one man. And there's moments that he's just almost reckless. But he was prophesied over by an old Indian chief who said, you'll never die in battle. That just, I don't know, I'm intrigued by that. I love it. I love that story. It's intriguing. Uh, You know, one of these days, one of these days, when I die and go to heaven, you know, after I've had a good conversation with Jesus and some others, I'm going to, I'm going to look up George Washington and he and I are going to have a conversation. All right. All right. Enough of uh, my, my future desires in heaven. All right. So uh, 1758, three years later, uh, here's what uh, another one of, you know, Washington's writings. He says, the last assembly provided for a chaplain to our regiment. On this subject, I had often without any success applied to Governor Dinwiddie. I now flatter myself that your honor will be pleased to appoint a sober, serious man for this duty. Common decency, sir, in a camp calls for the service of a divine. You know, so here Washington was one of the first individuals to call for a chaplain. Uh, It's important. He said, we need to have somebody here who is, what does he say? Who um, is a sober, serious man. Someone who understands, you know, what's at stake. We need a chaplain. And he was proud of that. In 1759, George fell in love with Martha Patsy Dandridge Custis. Uh, Martha was 26 years old. She was a widow. And she had two little children. Uh, John Jackie Park Custis and Martha Patsy Park Custis. Uh, And of course, Martha inherits five plantations totaling 17,500 acres. So, you know, Washington already has, you know, land and wealth to begin with, but then he marries Martha and, you know, she's like, yeah, I'm loaded too, you know, so let's go. Uh, Martha's daughter, Patsy, died at the age of 16 of an epileptic seizure in 1773, uh, while George held her in his arms. Uh, Later, George would write, the sweet, innocent girl entered into a more happy and peaceful abode than she had met in the afflicted path she had hitherto trod. I, I I just love that language. That language is so rich. And, you know, to have an understanding of death and, you know, what what people are going to upon their death, the, the, the better place that they're that they're going to, to have that understanding and to, to have that belief. That's rich. In 1775, after the Battle of Bunker Hill, uh, Washington is commissioned unanimously as the general of the Continental Army. And so here's what he writes to Martha. June 18th, 1775, he says, My dearest, it has been determined in Congress that the whole army raised for the defense of the American cause shall be put under my care, and that it is necessary for me to proceed immediately to Boston to take 
up command of it. You may believe me, my dear Patsy, when I assure you in the most solemn manner that so far from seeking this appointment, I have used every endeavor in my power to avoid it. You know, he's saying, look, I, I, you know, I didn't go after this. This has been thrust upon me. Matter of fact, if I could avoid it, I would. Then he continues, but as it has been a kind of destiny that has thrown me upon this service, I shall hope that my undertaking or that my undertaking it is designed to answer some good purpose. And indeed it was. It was designed to answer some good purpose, the purpose of our future, the purpose of our history, our past, our present, and our future. I shall rely, therefore, he says, confidently on that providence, which has heretofore preserved and been bountiful to me, not doubting, but that I shall return safely to you in the fall. So here it is. He's writing this in June. And he's like, don't worry. I'm going to I'm gonna come to you in the fall. I'll, I'll be safe to you in the fall. And then, you know, of course, he doesn't make it back to Mount Vernon until 17, you know, I don't know, 80, 83, 82, 83. Uh, that same year on July 4th, this is what Washington ordered. The general requires observance of those articles of war which forbid profane cursing, swearing, and drunkenness, and requires punctual attendance of divine services. So he's saying, look, the men in my army, they're not going to swear, uh, they're not going to be profane, they're not going to be drunk, and they're going to go to church, and they're going to be punctual about it. They're going to be on time. None of this sloppiness uh, on October 2nd that same year. These were the orders he issued. Any soldier who shall hereafter be detected playing at toss-up, pitch, and hustle, or any other games of chance, shall without delay be confined and punished. No gambling here. And then he, he, he offers this caveat. He says, the general does not mean by the above to discourage sports of exercise or recreation. He only means to, uh, to discountenance and punish gaming. I'm out here and I'm going to punish gambling. I don't. I want men of character. I don't want men that are just going to throw away their goods to chance. Going to throw away their cash to chance. None of that. None of that business. Uh, he issues another another similar order to that effect in February of 1776, um, and then in May of 1776. This is how he acknowledges God. He says, the Continental Congress, having ordered Friday the 17th instant to be observed as a day of fasting, humiliation, and prayer, humbly to supplicate the mercy of Almighty God. He, he wants his men to understand you know, the importance and the gravity of, of the work they're doing, of the fight that's before them, and he's calling on them. He said, this Friday the 17th, he issued this May 15th. So in two days, he said, uh, we're going to have a day of fasting. We're going to have a day of humiliation. We're going to have a day of prayer. We're going to humbly present ourselves to God Almighty for this cause. He continues, that it would please him to pardon all our manifold sins and transgressions and to prosper the arms of the United Colonies and finally establish the peace and freedom of America upon a solid and lasting foundation 
the general commands all officers and soldiers to pay strict obedience to the orders of the Continental Congress, that by their unfeigned and pious observance of their religious duties, they may incline the Lord and give her a victory to prosper our arms. Now, this is who General Washington was. He believed in God. He believed in providence. He believed in the direction, the care, and the protection of the Almighty. And that belief passed down to his officers, to his soldiers, to his entire army. On July 2nd, later that year, we're still in 1776. These are orders that he issues from his headquarters in New York, because the army is now in New York at this time. They're going to try to defend Long Island. The time is now near at hand, which must probably determine whether Americans are to be free men or slaves, whether they are to have any property they can call their own, whether their houses and farms are to be pillaged and destroyed and themselves consigned to a state of wretchedness from which no human efforts will deliver them. The fate of unborn millions will now depend under God on the courage and conduct of this army. Our cruel and unrelenting enemy leaves us no choice but a brave resistance or the most abject submission. We have, therefore, to resolve to conquer or die. Our own country's honor calls upon us for a vigorous and manly exertion, and if we now shamefully fail, we shall become infamous to the whole world. Let us rely upon the goodness of the cause and the aid of the supreme being in whose hands victory is to animate and encourage us to great and noble actions. Oh, man, I love that. I just love that language. He's talking about us here. He says the fate of unborn millions will now depend under God on the courage and conduct of this army. That's us, my friends. The fate of unborn millions. And he just says, look, uh, it's going to be bad if we lose this thing. So we have nothing to fall back on now except uh, courage and, and the Almighty. We have, therefore, to resolve to conquer or die. This is our, our resolution. we got to do this thing, fellas. And then, you know, so this is, this is July 2nd, 1776. So later this summer, he's driven out of New York, and he's on full-blown retreat. And then he's on retreat for months, facing defeat after defeat after defeat after defeat, after uttering these words that, you know, brave resistance is our only choice. We have to resist. Um, and, and he's facing defeat after defeat after defeat, but yet he still understands it's our courage in God that's going to get us through this. It's our courage in God that's going to make this thing happen. Uh, when the Declaration of Independence was, was finally written, a copy was rushed out to Washington, who was fortifying New York City at the time. He had it read to his troops, then ordered chaplains placed in each regiment, stating July 9th, 1776. Here's what he said. The general hopes and trusts that every officer and man will endeavor so to live and act as becomes a Christian soldier defending the dearest rights and liberties of his country. You know, Washington believed that the rights and the liberties were intertwined with, with Christianity. It's the doctrine of, of Christianity which even established this very thought, this very idea. 
to the Delaware Indian chiefs who brought three youths to be trained in American schools. Uh, here's what Washington said to them. This is 1779. Uh, you know, so the war is still going on, and Delaware Indian chiefs bring three youths to him because they want their kids trained in American schools. Washington says, you do well to wish to learn our arts and ways of life, and above all, the religion of Jesus Christ. Above all, Washington said. I mean, <laughs> three Indian youths are, are, are dropped off by the Indian chiefs to attend American schools, and Washington says, you, you know, you're going to do well to learn our arts, our way of life, but above everything, what they're going to learn in American schools is the religion of Jesus Christ. Oh, that is so good. The tremendous victory at the Battle of Yorktown, uh, which kind of sealed the deal, October 19th, 1781, which, uh, you know, secured American independence, was personally bittersweet for Washington, as his wife's son, John Park Custis, who had been Washington's aide-de-camp, uh, he died of camp fever there during that battle, November 5th, 1781. Though never having children of his own, George agreed to adopt John Park Custis's two young children as his very own. Eleanor, who they called Nellie, Eleanor Park Custis, and George Washington Park Custis. Uh, so these are, uh, are the grandkids of his wife, and George adopts them as his own kids. Uh, and so George Washington Park Custis uh, would marry uh, Mary Anna Lee, who was the daughter, uh, or, or, or I'm sorry, uh, George Washington Park Custis would have a daughter. Her name is Mary Anna, and uh, she married Robert Lee. So Washington's uh, adopted daughter has a daughter who marries the general, Robert E. Lee. Did you know that? Did you know that uh, General Lee, who is despised and hated nowadays, uh, was actually Washington's uh, grandson and or adopted son-in-law? Uh-huh. When the Articles of Confederation proved inadequate for the new nation, George Washington agreed to preside over the Constitutional Convention in 1787. And here's how he opened that convention. He said, the event is in the hand of God. That's how he started it. Fellas, this is, this is, this is God's work. It's in God's hands. And of course, in 1789, he's sworn in as the first president of the United States. Uh, president Washington thanked God for the Constitution. On October 3rd, 1789, here's what he said. Whereas it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, I do recommend rendering unto him our sincere and humble thanks for the favorable interpositions of his providence we experienced in the course and conclusion of the late war, for the peaceable and rational manner in which we have been enabled to establish constitutions of government. I mean, if you think about what they did, uh, I mean, they, they formed a new government twice, <laughs> twice, and, and to do so peaceably and to do so rationally 
they acknowledge the hand of God in every single aspect of that. Uh, on October, on uh, August 15th, 1787, here's what he writes to Lafayette. I am not less ardent in my wish that you may succeed in your plan of toleration in religious matters. Being no bigot myself to any mode of worship, I am disposed to indulge the professors of Christianity in the church with that road to heaven, which to them shall seem the most direct, plainest, and easiest, and the least liable to exception. Washington uh, sent a letter to the Jewish congregation in Newport, Rhode Island, and also in Savannah, Georgia, and, and, and here's what he said. May the same wonder-working deity who long since delivered the Hebrews from their Egyptian oppressors planted them in a promised land whose providential agency has lately been conspicuous in establishing these United States as an independent nation, still continue to water them with the dews of heaven. So Washington equated uh, the work that, that they did in the, in the early days there uh, with, with the Hebrews. The, Hebrew, the Hebrews and their situations uh, with the Egyptians, Washington equated with the Americans and their situations with the Brits. Uh, in 1794, during the Whiskey Rebellion, Washington became the only sitting president as commander-in-chief to lead the United States Army out into the field, which he did. He put on his, his battle gear. He said, fellas, let's go. We're going to put a stop to this rebellion. And the second they saw Washington on horseback in his uniform, the rebellion was over. It ended. Oh, man, I love it. Washington chose only to serve two terms as president, leaving an example which every succeeding president followed until we get to Franklin Roosevelt, who was like, uh-uh, I'm not leaving this place. I'm going to die here. And this, of course, uh, necessitated the 22nd Amendment, which limited the presidency to only two terms. We're like, uh-uh, we're not going to have a king. We're not going to have a dictator here. Uh, you, you know, if you aren't going to willingly follow Washington's example, we're going to forcibly put it upon you. And therefore, we have the 22nd Amendment, and we're grateful for it. Uh, Washington, can something interesting, he continually had toothaches. By the time of his inauguration, he only had one tooth in his mouth. As several dentists uh, made makeshift dentures for him. <laughs> Could you imagine? Uh, of course, Washington, you know, frees uh, William Lee. William Lee was was alongside Washington through the entire Revolutionary War uh, as his servant, and and he frees him. He says, "I give immediate freedom." Uh, to William Lee, I allow him an annuity of $30 during his natural life, and this I give him as a testimony of my sense of his attachment to me and for his faithful service during the Revolutionary War. You know, so Washington ends up, you know, you know, paying him for his work. Uh, in his will, Washington freed the rest of his slaves Upon his wife Martha's death, Martha freed them the year after Washington died. Martha's like, uh-uh, we're not going to wait for me to die. We're freeing them. In his will, George also made provision that elderly and sick slaves 
were to be supported by his estate in perpetuity. Uh, and this is what he writes to uh, Lafayette, 1786, you know, before his death. Uh, he says, your late purchase of an estate in the colony of Cayenne with the view of emancipating the slaves on it is a generous and noble proof of your humanity. Would to God a like spirit would diffuse itself generally into the minds of the people of this country. And this was his desire. This was his hope and his dream. He wanted slavery to end. He wanted it to be done. Um, as the early country took shape, uh, partisan politics became increasingly vicious, and Washington, you know, saw this happening. Uh, he was often, you know, victim of it. Uh, ungracious attacks from from people who disagreed with him. Here he is, unanimously elected. He's loved by one and all, you know. But people who disagree with his policies start attacking him viciously and personally. And Washington warned how ambitious politicians would be tempted to use crises, crises as opportunities to usurp power. And how prophetic is that? Because, you know, we've got one group saying, you know, don't let a good crisis go to waste. I mean, this is your advantage. This is your time. You know, take power when a, when a crisis arises. And Washington warned of this. He saw this coming. In his farewell address in 1796, as he's he's done, he's served his two years or his two terms, he's ready to go back to Mount Vernon and just retire. In his farewell address, he, he warned of those who would usurp power and rule through executive orders, which were, were watching unfold in our very lives today. Here's what he said, disorders and miseries, which result gradually incline the minds of men to seek security and repose in the absolute power of an individual who turns who turns this disposition to the purposes of his own elevation on the ruins of public liberty and, and we're watching that today we're watching public liberty be ruined because you know individuals want their own power they want their own elevation Washington continued, the spirit of encroachment tends to consolidate the powers of all the departments in one, and thus to create whatever the form of government, a real despotism. The, the, he said, if, if we're not careful, we're going to turn this thing into despotism. If we let just, you know, one group have control. He continues, let there be no change by usurpation. For though this, in one instance, may be the instrument of good, it is the customary weapon by which free governments are destroyed. The precedent of usurpation must always greatly overbalance in permanent evil any partial or transient benefit which the use can at any time yield. All right, so what he's saying here is there's going to be people that are going to take advantage of a crisis to usurp power. And you have to be careful. You have to be. You have to have a watchful eye against that. And my friends, we have not had a watchful eye against it. We watched it. We didn't watch it unfold. We weren't alive for the most part. I don't know. Maybe someone was. I wasn't alive when you know coming out of the Great De Depression, uh, Roosevelt usurped authority because of that crisis. It, you know, we watched 
uh, government usurp authority coming out of you know 9-11. We watched that happen. We've watched government usurp authority coming out of this quote unquote, well, you know, pandemic of 2020. And and Washington warned us about this on his way out the door. He said, You have to watch out for this. And have we watched out for it? Uh, I'm afraid we haven't. I'm afraid we've missed it. We need to go back to Washington's farewell address that needs to be read in schools. Students need to memorize portions of it because it's important for, for a generation to learn and know because if they if if they knew the words of Washington, we would understand what's happening to us today in this very year, in this very moment of our lives. This is why, my friends, actual history is so important. And this is why history class here behind this microphone is so important. That's why I do it. All right, let's uh, let's wrap history class up. Earlier in 1783, the American-born painter Benjamin West was in England painting the portrait of King George III. All right, so the 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 war is over, you know, for the most part. We have an American-born painter in England painting the portrait of, of the king. When the king asked what General Washington planned to do now that he had won the war, West, the painter, replies like this, quote, They say he will return to his farm. George replied, If he does that, he will be the greatest man in the world. And that's what George did. He returned to his farm until he was called upon again. Poet Robert Frost wrote this, I often say of George Washington that he was one of the few men in the whole history of the world who was not carried away by power. Charles Francis Adams, who was the grandson of John Adams, this is what he wrote. More than all and above all, Washington was master of himself. If there be one quality more than another in his character, which may exercise a useful control over the men of the present hour, it is the total disregard of self when in the most elevated positions for influence and example. And then also George Washington added in his farewell address the following. Of all the dispositions and habits which lead to politically or which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. In vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism who should labor to subvert these great pillars of human happiness. So in his closing, Washington said, you, you can't call yourself a patriot if you attempt to remove the indispensable supports of this country, which are religion and morality. I mean, think about that. Washington said, you're unpatriotic. Almost you could say you're un-American if you are making any attempt at all to remove the two pillars that support this country in the form of religion and morality. He believed that strongly in, in them. And, and here we are today. We are in the midst of, you know, of a Supreme Court, you know, decades ago that took out religion and morality from the educational foundation of our kids. And Washington said, you're not patriotic. You're unpatriotic if you, if you attempt to do this. In vain, you call yourself a patriot. Uh, and that was in his farewell address. 
you know, but we don't we don't teach the farewell address anymore in public schools. And so our kids don't know what Washington believed. They don't know that he was of the opinion, a truthful opinion in my opinion. They don't know that he believed religion and morality were the two foundational supports which upheld this country. And if you take those away, Washington deemed you unpatriotic. This is why history class is so important here, and that's why we do it. Uh, and I've been looking forward to this. Um, I've been looking forward to, to and there's going to be more, more of this, more of Washington. Uh, I mean, we have to do this, as they say in Chicago, early and often. All right. Thank you for joining me for history class today. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I do. We will do it again. Encourage your friends and family to get on the Dean's List. Let's unite to renovate the age.